for January 16th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 185, Decorative Arts. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather, your host, and I'm here with the panel. It's Golden Globes Night. Woohoo! Oh boy. And uh, as a measure of our, not only do we release 52 original weeks of entertainment for you on this podcast every year, uh, never having missed one in three years, I probably should lean less hard on that record because eventually we're going to F up, aren't we? And, uh, you know, then then I'm going to have to eat my words. But until now, while all those other podcasts are watching the Golden Globes and, you know, playing a clip show or a rerun or something like that, we are here podcasting for you, uh, you know, and we'll uh, we'll break in with our reporters live at the Golden Globes uh, a little uh, a little later on. Um, so, uh, panel question for tonight in honor of Hugo, what uh, public infrastructure, what what, you know, um, in the walls of which kind of public infrastructure project would you like to live? <laughs> that, giggle, that giggle belongs to none other than my co-podcaster from last week in our uh, epic two-hander and uh, now a three-hander this week. It's Pete Fenzel. Everybody needs a third hand sometimes, right? It's just it adds a little bit of value to the situation. Uh, <laughs> uh, cool. Um, let's see. So I think one infrastructure project that I've long been fascinated with in this sort of weird way is uh, Aqueduct 3. Where they, they still are doing that, right, Mark? They're still working on that? I don't know uh, what that is. And just oh. by the way, I'm very surprised you didn't go with the obvious answer of the Port Authority bus terminal. <laughs> Next to New York Wait, City, could, New York, New Jersey. You think I like, to, I like to get in fistfights with people? Is that what it is? Well, I mean, <laughs> that and, you know, New Jersey. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's very true. I mean, I don't know. If I were to pick a New Jersey transportation hub, I would pick the Frank Lautenberg Railway Station in Secaucus, New Jersey, which is a far superior train station and transportation hub to the Port Authority bus terminal. Where, of course, on in Area X. I told you about – were you reading my Twitter around Thanksgiving when I was on uh, Area X of the Port Authority bus terminal? Um, which is where – which is like the – they take a whole half of the complex and they devote it – entirely to the line for the bus to Boston. And it just snakes in, in like 30-yard wide circles around the area. Hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, mostly college students, taking the bus back to, the, uh, back to, um, back to Boston after Thanksgiving. So that, that's Area X, which is very mysterious and, and excellent. But Aqueduct 3 is the project, I believe it appears in the movie Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, it is the, yes, it is the, the New York City, Manhattan Island of New York City, its water supply is generally supplied by two different aqueducts, one of which is to, I believe, the reservoir in Central Park, or they go to Westchester, right? There's like, there's aqueducts to reservoirs that are like fairly nearby, but the problem is that you can't turn them off to repair them because the water demand and water supply are so tight. They're afraid to close the valves because if they close them, uh, they're afraid they will not be able to open them again, in which case um, it would be a horrible catastrophe Wait, along the a, scope of a... Uh, there was a great New Yorker article about this a couple years ago, a couple few years ago, and uh, the other thing uh, that I guess was, was uh, the idea that was floated at the time was that the only thing holding up those aqueducts, because they are so old, may in fact yeah. be the pressure from the water that is flowing, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is flowing like the through. Like the water is the strongest substance still left in their construction. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, which is which is amazing. And and so back when they were, I think they must. I think parts of Aqueduct Three went online a while ago, um, but. When I first heard about this and read this this article, I think there were articles in the Times too when they were building it. Aqueduct Three was like my planned New York City zombie evacuation route, right? Which is like to find the entrances to Aqueduct Three and like take it out north of the city, which would be very scary because it would be dark and then there would be zombies down there. But I guess you know I didn't think my cutting plan all the way through. But yeah, but it would be cool because you'd be able to move in and out of New York without having to deal with tolls, which would have like (laughs) at least like a value of at least twelve dollars a day, (laughs) which is a pretty nice. uh, uh, pretty nice just for for living somewhere negative twelve dollars in rent that's pretty sweet plus just like the sort of myth the mysticism of it the john mcleanism of it and all that other stuff oh well, i guess if i lived in port authority bus terminal i could smell diesel fuel and urine and chop it to Dwayne reed so like that's not too bad <laughs> <laughs> i like this idea of like oh my god we have to get out of new york city and there's a zombie apocalypse how are we gonna get out of there <laughs> the response is well which is the route that has the least holes yeah <laughs> Like, let's take the Queens Midtown Tunnel. No, no, no. There's tolls. Uh, take the Queensboro Bridge. <laughs> no, you gotta you see. You gotta get on the Sawmill River Parkway. <laughs> get on the, no, um, we. I had, I've talked this over with a dear, dear friend of mine who lives in New York for years when we lived in New York, and uh, um, yeah, and I, there was a shop that near where I lived that had like that sold handmade canoes. They didn't generally sell them there, like in Manhattan, but you could buy them from them, and they would commission them for you, and they would craft them for you. But they had, like, a show canoe in their front door. So one of the strategies was to, like, go there, break the glass, like, steal the show canoe, and, like, take that to the Hudson River and go from there. But one of the other strategies was to get to Aqueduct 3, which, of course, has to remain sealed to people not just walking into it because of all the construction and stuff. So there you go. So any of those would make for a fantastic 3D phantasmagoria and surreal uh, articulation. <laughs> of the imagination of a child, right? Hmm. Uh, Mark Lee is next in the alphabet. Okay, so I just did add that the, this question was prompted by me having seen Hugo and having brought it up earlier. We may talk more about Hugo later in what I believe is the larger arc of the conversation about technology and entertainment. Uh, but we'll say that for later. Uh, so just briefly on Hugo. Hugo's a really ideal movie for me because uh, I love trains and I love robots. Uh, these things, the the latter you probably knew about me, but trains is sort of a fascination to me. And uh, so the kid, like, you know, lives in the, this famous train station in, in Paris, whose name is escaping me now, and is works on the tinkers on a uh, an automaton, which is a better uh, way to describe it than robot. But um, so I like both of these things. And I'm thinking, like, you know, I'd want to live in a train station. I'd want to be building a robot as well while I'm, you know, hiding between the walls of this train station. And uh, this robot should, you know, ideally, you know, help help humanity against the uh, the robots that will eventually take us over, right? So, you know, this is my sort of my anti-Terminator Terminator. So a better place to build this than a Union Station in Los Angeles, right? Because we all know that's where uh, Skynet first rises, right? Or at least that's where Skynet keeps sending us robots back <laughs> the time. So Man. that's just, that's really for just it, purely based on strategic reasons. I've never been to Union Station in Los Angeles. I don't know if it's conducive to hiding out and, you know, living in between the walls and building robots. But I figure, you know, I will strategically position my robot to fight Terminators. Uh-huh. I figure I thought you would pick the Los Angeles River, the Los Angeles River Bank, that concrete embankment so that you can like whisper to passing tractor trailers, to, like, please drive down it so that you can reenact the term and then get a motorcycle <laughs> and just reenact the Terminator 2 chase sequence like every day. Um, well, Matt, well, that, that, that would have been my second. A couple hours ago, I was just jogging down the concrete, you know, the concrete enclosed chute of the Los Angeles tributary to the Los Angeles River. Uh, embankment um sorry what were you gonna ask pete 
Oh, I was just saying, what is that thing called? The thing that is in Terminator 2? What is its proper name, that concrete thing? It's the, that is the Los Angeles River. That is the Los Angeles River. <laughs> yeah. There's no word for the concrete. The concrete just, and the puddles. The, and full on, the, the epistemology is like totally about rivers and nature and yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the uh, last year, and it actually, you know, it actually runs when, it, when we get a really rainy February or something like that, which happens from time to time. We had one last okay. year. But, uh, well, good good you know, for you. Your river sometimes works. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, global warming. That's what, uh, you know, the climate change is, is giving us uh, more rain in the desert here, I think. All right. Mine, um, I, I want something uh, I want something like high. I, I want something with excitement. And so I was thinking uh, the um, like the Delta Terminal uh, at JFK Airport with. <laughs> Yeah. Like the excitement of not knowing when your plane's going to leave. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I, that's a really beautiful building. It's a, fa- it's a famous building. Uh-huh. Um, and is that the one with, like, the cantonary or parabolic construction? Yes. Or is that? I yeah, don't know yeah, what yeah. that means, but I'm just going to say yes because it, Okay. Uh, yeah. So, or, you know, um, I don't know, maybe, like, Grand Central Terminal or, or something like that. What, what I was thinking was that it would be cool uh, to have, like, an old-style, Indiana Jones-style Zeppelin terminal, uh, you know, and uh, have, have, that be, have that be the home. But um, You could just, like, ask people for tickets and punch their lights out when they don't have them. That's no really what you tickets. want to do, right? Or, you know, Kleiner, or, uh, I don't know, Nicht, <laughs> ticket. You can tell I don't speak German. But, um, uh, but if I can depart from the question a little bit, where I've always wanted to live is in the, uh, the sort of made-up rooms in, like, uh, oh, in museums like the Victoria and Albert or the, the Wings of the Met where they do the, like, the furnishings and the paintings and the interior design, those sections. I forget. I, what, what is that kind of museum called? Uh, there's a name for that. It's right next to the arms and armor section. I know that much because I always used to want to rush through it to get to see the swords and the pikes and the armor suits when I was a kid. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Just rush through the old like Louis thirteen rooms and things like yeah. this. And- this is just a chair. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> it's it's impressive when you get older and you care about furniture and you're like, wow, they must have really maxed out their credit cards on those. Like I can barely handle my crate and barrel dresser like that's ridiculous but uh, but no it gets more impressive furniture as art it gets more impressive as you get it to be more mature although you were probably born with a full appreciation of furniture and upholstery right right Matt? like in in the womb you were developing your sense for fine velvets i mean this so. is all fine and good but matt you seem to have expanded our definition of public infrastructure no, yeah I do. well i do i guess some of those museums get municipal or state funding so i'll i'll uh you know, I'll I'll say that I'm I'm still in, but uh, well, public or private aside, I mean, there's like infrastructure, you know, like things that you know help sort of grease the wheels of the economy, and then like you know a museum. Are you saying the museums not, don't sorry. help to grease the wheels of the economy? Mark, they provide uh, vital vital tourism dollars for the uh, you know for the the local economies, in addition to um, you know running all kinds of gift shops and retail operate. I mean, have you been in in uh, a museum recently? It's like being in Disneyland. You can't. Go seventy five feet without uh, without running into a little kiosk selling you know books and those big giant oversized legs of turkey. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. Museum infrastructure. If you want to be an infrastructure, just live in like the the like electrical wiring that goes to the Met. 
yeah. right? Like, <laughs> and then you can like travel around it at will, like fast, just fast, almost as fast as the speed of light. There's or a, at the speed of light. There's a children's what? book that I read in elementary school called From the Mix, Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yep. And uh, it's, it's about um, uh, a girl and her brother, and they go to live in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they stay in one of these, like, you know, uh, royal-looking, you know, French royalty rooms with all the, the nice furniture. What is, what is this? Uh, wh- why can't I think of this phrase that I'm talking about? It's like... Um, it's not like textile arts. It's is it like commercial art or uh, art and des- or design or interior design? I forget. There's a sorry. I don't mean to go off like this down a rat hole, but there's a name for this kind of. Um, uh, it's, it's either bed or bath or beyond. I think <laughs> it's basically like like the analogy would be linguistics is to philology as design is to the word that you're looking for. Right. Exactly. Right. You're looking for like the old timey word for the artistic appreciation, kind of like philosophically informed and less mathematically informed, you know, of furniture and decoration. Yep. Right. Okay. Well, if you know this, put it in the comments. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of a word. Guess it. The. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, um, okay, so here's here's what we uh, uh, here's what we uh, have planned to talk about tonight. Uh, Mark saw Hugo, and both he and I have seen The Artist, and both of those are films that deal with um, entertainment and technology and art. The in, the the intersection of art, entertainment, and uh, technology, and what they um, uh, you know, and what happens to art when the technology changes and uh we were gonna kind of use that kind of as a jumping off point tonight right right mark what's what's the kind of message what's the takeaway uh from from hugo because from the artist it's that like uh tap dancing conquers all um <laughs> the, the takeaway from hugo is that a small terminator will uh break the disillusionment of an old man right <laughs> Well, is that was it like AI or like no the, the I mean, takeaway no 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 so the the automaton it's 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 a little bit complicated and although I like the movie it didn't work uh, completely as like a machine like as the set automaton does but basically so the thrust of it is uh, an old filmmaker um, is, is disillusioned like sort of like his business failed um, and yet like. You know, it's, the arc is all about how he sort of re- regains that past of his and is celebrated again through uh, the actions of this young boy who has this automaton who is connected to uh, the Skynet and, and this old man in, in very complicated ways. Okay, I'm a little bit lost. <laughs> um, so it's so about the, the idea... power of film. It's about the power of film. The transformative it... art, decorative now, art. Now, when we That's talk the about the history, when we talk about art. when we talk about the history of this kind of story, the myth that comes to mind is the myth of Pygmalion, right? Where you have a man who is trying to achieve some sort of sense of permanence over the kind of fleeting intensity of his libidinous emotions and his love emotions and his like his sort of love for life his lust for life but it's been interfered with because of his desire for perfection or his disillusionment with imperfection right and so he seeks out to create like the ultimate thing this ultimate thing, this Pygmalion story, whether it turns out to be like a statue of Venus or it turns out to be, you know, a British girl who's going to become, you know, fancy pants or whether it's like, you know, a robot that absorbs other robots to take their power and fight 
Goku and Gohan and stuff. Like, like this creation of this perfect thing, this Pymalion story, is usually cast as, as sort of an Icarus myth where the person goes too far. Right and, and like plays God, uh, and there's some sort of um, comeuppance. Now, I guess sometimes it's it's a comeuppance that's humbling but positive, where the person's arrogance in terms of thinking that they would be the master of this perfection is it's, turned on its head. It's not even that though. It's not yeah. not like you know he strives to make these amazingly you know complicated movies or this you know amazingly complicated automaton. It's just like, like World War One happens, and then his movies aren't popular anymore. So this might not be – Hugo might not be the best jumping out point for this because, like, the real interesting thing about uh, Hugo and technology and movies is how about – it's about how it's this real testament to the, you know, the very beginnings of cinema and the moving picture. And yet it's, like, also, like, a 3D uh, sort of spectacle as well. So right, right, but maybe right. let's come back to this. And since, like, uh, you know, Matt and Pete, you guys have really uh, sort of set the cognitive agenda – well, but, but if we're talking about World War One, I, I mean, the classic textbook history narrative of the culture of, of that happened to World War One is that you know there was this idea at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the early 20th century, that had been building for a while that mankind was progressing, right, and that we were getting better at stuff and our technology was getting better and we were kind of approaching a major breakthrough in our uh, extensions of our life expectancy and the conveniences of our living standards and like our civilizations and our and our methods of government, everything was getting better and it was getting to a it was starting on this journey or going forth in this journey that was going to make uh humanity not necessarily transcend but definitely kind of amp up to a degree that we would not even recognize ourselves and we didn't recognize and part of it is that we didn't recognize ourselves from previous generations and then world war one comes along and shatters that idea and Mm -hmm. it's like oh no Actually, we have all of the same problems that we've had before. It's just that technology, rather than being this mark of our progress towards perfection or aspiration or improvement, uh, has also become this incredible tool for destruction. It just amplifies our ability to exercise all of our impulses, good and bad. Right? And this ca- capacity, it's, it's sort of like when you're talking to somebody who does kung fu or shoots guns, and they're like, uh, well, if you're the kind of person who actually trains to do this thing, it makes you less likely to actually want to use it. Right, like if I practice with my gun all the time, I'm going to be pretty good at gun safety. If I practice kung fu all the time, I'm not. I'm going to be so like one with myself, and I'm going to understand the importance and the complication and the consequences of a fight, such that I'm not actually going to want to get in a fight. I'm not going to go try to beat somebody up with my Wing Chun kung fu because I understand from training kung fu like the nature of violence better. And and there's this big cultural idea around World War One in particular, and you can see it in a lot of artistic, you know, art, art art history. It's like a consensus view. I'm sure that people will shatter it or have shattered it in all sorts of graduate school essays. But um, but this idea that that World War One kind of like shatters this idea that technology is doing that for humanity in general, partially because technology ends up in the hands of people who don't understand it, and, and part of it because you know our baser instincts. Uh, we have not conquered them. Is that another idea? More like, and more like, not even in the Victorian sense of being increasingly ascetic and being increasingly against our impulses is going to help us out, but that um, just just that the problems are endemic to the human condition, and then there's issues that we don't know how to deal with. And then World War II, the culture around that, the mathematics and game theory, and comes to a much more robust understanding of what all of that might mean. But again, this is like a you know a high school college caliber. Uh, discussion of the historical narrative. Uh, I mean, does that sound closer to what Hugo was about? Where it's like, oh, I thought the world was going to be this great place where I was going to make movies, but then World War One happened and shattered the idea that my dream was going to come true. So I'm going to try to create an imagination of a world where this might be able to happen because it can't happen in the world that I currently live in. That first part that you that that, that you brought up there is 
is is more germane to the movie. And it's okay. like, you know, he he has this wonderful life of making movies, and then World War One comes along and it sort of shatters uh, his entire existence, destroys his movie business, and then he lives sort of a sad existence right. after that. And then everything from there. So you're saying that it isn't as strictly allegorical. It's it's re- it's represent it's presentational rather than representational. There are ideas involved, but there isn't sort of a clear allegorical story that you picked up that took helps you take away like a very clear message about what it all meant, which I guess makes sense with Martin Scorsese, right? Like, yeah, that that, that I mean, maybe I haven't had enough time to sort of chew this over, but like, uh, it's it sort of in asking what this movie is is really about. Um, it, 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 it kind of boils down to like the the effective transformative power of cinema and like the characters inside of it, you know, like they, they talk about their love of movies and how like, you know, and, and, and how movies, you know, are where sort of dreams come true. Mm-hmm. And the, I, and I'm trying to figure out how exactly this little automaton, this sort of Terminator, as I jokingly refer to it, fits into all of that. And, and like, that's what I referred to earlier when I said, like, you know, this, everything doesn't sort of come together and wrap, wrap up together in a neat package. Because there's a lot of these interesting ideas about technology in this movie, right? You have sort of the crude, you see the crude fr- primitive filmmaking techniques of the early pioneers of cinema, you know, like uh, the jump cuts, the editing, uh, the very crude special effects. Um, you see the technology in the form of this intricate wind-up toy, which you know, uh, which is actually you know, able to draw a picture, you know, from uh, from the clockwork inside of it. There's a lot of work about uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, imagery of clocks and gears and things like that as well. And then on top, later on top of that, again, you have the meta uh, technology story about Martin Scorsese doing a sort of 3D spectacular, you know, where there's, you know, lots of sort of stylized effects and the snow is is coming down in a very 3D way. And he really sort of, you know, tries to push 3D to its boundaries. So those are all the sort of the, the ingredients that I'm putting out there. I haven't had really time to to formulate all that in here. And uh, I'm sort of putting it out to you, but also we're putting it out there to you and sort of, uh, you know, we've got this very amorphous topic here about technology and and, and culture. And we've, you know, spawned, spawned the Hispanic history from World War One uh, all the way up to, I guess, only to World War Two. So, uh, take it away, guys. Okay, what, are, what, okay. are talk, what are we talking about? Here? Okay, so here's the deal. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Matt, if Matt, you want to chime in. I don't know if there's anything to do with the artist, but this is my main takeaway from this: is that there is a mythology to the movies that has been told and retold by movie makers. Um, that the movies have this power to transform us and, and tra- transport us and to create our dreams and to make things real. Um, the movies create all these tropes that end up being meaningful in our lives. I mean, Marilyn Monroe, the bombshell, like, doesn't exist independently of the movie industry that created her as an idea. And this is part of the discourse drink. And that also also this- bombshells in World War I and World War II. Exactly. Both. Both of them at the same time with them painted on the side. But no, the, the idea is that movies have this, this quality of transcendence and, and this role and this, and this innovation that, that having made movies is like an achievement that in some way affects or changes the human condition. And movie makers tend to say this separately from other kinds of media like you know comics or other kinds of sequential art like engravings or books or or things like that i mean there's a definite love letter to movies and of course if you make movies for a living for your life of course i would want you to love it right but the thing that i think we wanted to talk about today is more along the lines of is this legit and how 
how intense are and how committed are the movies as a cultural uh, cultural group? Like if the movies constitute a group of, of people who, who work and perform and understand and discuss, if they're this whole paradigm, right, this whole big beast, if the movies are this beast and they claim this role, how committed are they to continuing to serve this role in the culture, in the economy, in the lives of everyday people versus how committed are they to the professional craft of making like movies, by which I mean like strips of film or digital recordings of sequential images that tell that are projected in theaters or at homes and tell narrative stories of a certain length with a certain sort of actor that's a star. Like there's all there's and ideally this- earn money for the people who are doing that as well. You love me well, that I mean, a second category. Yeah, whether or not they earn money is, is kind of a consequence. It's, whether they earn money is a necessary consequence of them happening within a capitalist system, right? Like you can – I mean you could say, OK, they're nonprofit. That's fine. That, let's, let's, let's put aside the question of whether they're profitable uh, for, the, for the moment and instead let's just talk about like whether this is what we want to do, um, right? And I, and I think – I've talked about a couple years ago. It might have even only been one year ago, but I think it was a couple years ago on the podcast, uh, a Harvard Business Classics essay called Marketing Myopia, which is a very um, oft-quoted uh, essay. And it's about the railroad industry. And, and the big question in it is, what is your business? Right? Ask yourself as a business executive, what is your business? If you're a railroad executive and you say, my business is the railroads, if people stop wanting to ride the railroads, you have no business. Right, mm-hmm. and and if if you say my business is transportation, like why is it that the railroad companies didn't become airplane companies? Bicycle company became an airplane company, right? The Wright brothers were bicycle people before they became airplane people, right? BMW was a was a fighter jet company that became a car company, right? And, and the idea it's is not go, understand. Not go into the history of BMW because there's nothing good down that rabbit hole. I, you know, that's that's probably Hugo <laughs> Boss is a company that made some wonderful brown shirts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got striking, striking, and I. Iconic. Those brown but shirts were. The point of bringing it up is that is that a company, people who work in these companies that have been around for a while or their their whole livelihoods, they get this idea that the company is like necessarily wedded to its current activities and its logistical support system and the people who are involved with it. And I mean, there's a certain boring conversation we can have where we're like, well, people are pirating movies, so the movies need to come up with a way of streaming movies online that people will pay for. Right, like there you go. Like there's a that's the easy answer, right? Where it's like clearly the model for making motion pictures is flawed because they're being undercut in the market, so they need to change what they're doing to be competitive. Um, but I would I would widen that conversation out a little bit here because we talked about that. We had that conversation on the previous podcast, and we talked about different sort of ways that movies can make money. But let's talk about instead if the movies really claim to be about this transformative experience. Right, if they really claim to have this cultural role, first of all, are they totally are they telling the truth? Do they have this role? And second of all, how can they continue to serve this role? What flexibility do they have in their activities and their business model to continue to serve this function? If this is the thing that they think that they do that's important. Well, Pete, right? can I can I answer your question? Yeah, sure. By, go ahead. By asking you another question, <laughs> <laughs> may I please answer your question with yeah. a question? It's like, I think. Oh, two says what? Wait, what? Exactly. <laughs> like, no, no, no. What's the question? <laughs> uh, I think I I think that you may I I think that there may be a little bit of of question begging in terms of what exactly uh, you know quote this role end quote is right that that is to say. 
that that movies are are involved in in what specifically the creation of cul- of of culture the creation of ideals the creation of culture the the um kind of the promulgation of of uh, you know paradigms of images of men and women in life and and what they're like or what they should be like or what they can aspire to uh I mean, Marilyn, I, Marilyn Monroe was one example, and it's a good one, and I, you know, and I get that. But what other? I mean, what other kinds of things? What other kinds of things? And well, also, there were so many when you started talking about the movies. There were so many, or this, or this, or this, or this. That I think the problem. I mean, the problem becomes becomes clear. You know what I mean? It's it's sort yeah. of nothing. It's sort of nothing because it's. Uh, because it's everything, right? Like, well, okay, they're done on strips of film, except they're not really done on strips of film anymore, so there are all these other things that we have to kind of include under the tent, and they're, they're exhibited in these, like, big theaters, except they're not really exhibited in these big theaters anymore, yep. so there are all these other things uh, that we have to, um, you know, that, that we have to kind of bring, bring into the tent. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think, I think part of the... I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I, I'm asking you the same question in a different way, which is that it seems like it, it seems like the questions that we're asking about entertainment are not very good uh, because they're not they're not very specific. Uh, okay. Because uh, you know what I mean. Because we're asking, hey, what would be good? You know what I mean? Or what would what would do better than this? Or you know, without without necessarily necessarily clearly defining goals. Like I think theatrical exhibition actually could be a could be a viable business, but it's probably a niche business and not a not a mass business anymore. Because I think the way the only way the only theaters that are that are making money and doing okay are the ones that are doing this like bespoke you know table service at your leather recliner while the you know while the movie plays in front of you uh for sixty dollars a seat um kind you know kinds of places but uh you know and, and so who knows right like um i i think that you're right in identifying the question of like well what what kind of distribution mechanism uh you know, can we devise so that making the same old crap will work for a little while longer? And, uh, and the new, uh, that, that, uh, I think the, the only thing, uh, the only solution is there has to be new crap. Wow. That was a totally, that was a totally, uh, <laughs> disorganized, disorganized the only- <laughs> are, are we, are we, are we asking, let me, Pete, let me try to boil down your question very succinctly here. Are we just basically asking like why movies? <laughs> Um, like, well, should we, you know, do movies have a, you know, I don't know what it is. Do movies have a right to continue to exist? Like, ought there still be movies? Is that kind of what we're asking? Well, no, no, no. I, I'm not necessarily saying ought there, ought there to be movies. I definitely, why movies? Or even what movies? What is the movie business? You know, what, what is it? What, what is it that they're providing? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? Now we can yeah, try okay, to define so, so, it, right? Because there's a there's a positive answer to that question. Uh, whereas, you know, the 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 movie business is a vertically integrated system of producing a certain kind of product, right? Um, uh, producing and distributing a certain kind of product. But but I think I think you were pointing at uh, at a much larger question, like what, why movies? What is the mission of movies? Or what is the basic right. need? What is the basic sort of human need? Uh, 
that that movies serve and or the uh, the utility i mean maybe basic human need that that sounds a little bit like you know the moment on the emmys right every year there's a moment on the emmys where someone says something along the lines of television is the great global campfire around which well that that is exactly what i'm talking about i'm talking about those kinds of moments are they actually mission statements or are they full of crap Right, like I think in the case of television, they're full of crap. I mean, (laughs) television is there to to get you to sit still between advertisements. Um, (laughs) Well, if that's their role, then maybe they could get into a whole bunch of different kinds of businesses, like like ropes, right, or like uh, like magnets, (laughs) like tasers, like like gas systems that they put in your home that that paralyze you. People put billboards in front of your eyes. Let me take a stab at at answering this. Okay, Okay. Uh, so I think there's a fundamental human desire to both tell stories and to hear stories. Okay. Okay. Am I okay? You got okay. right that right, and then you can go on from there and talk about you know you know not just telling and sharing of stories, but also having a common set of myths and you know cultural tropes and those sort of. Things. We want to belong to a, a you know a, a larger set of uh, of symbols and 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 shortcuts to meaning and things like that, like you know having our heroes uh, be a Marilyn Monroe or Iron Man. Okay. Um, and so we so we have that. There's a you know there's a, there's a supply there's a there's a demand for it right. For storytelling and for myth creation, things like that. And so people who are in the culture creation business would step back and think, okay, what are different ways of meeting that demand? How can I tell stories and get those out there? Both because I want to make those stories because I think it's fun and because I could, you know, meet that demand, people will receptive to it, and I could potentially make money from it. Okay. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways to do that, right? I can write books. I can write comic books. I can, like, uh, stand on my street corner and uh, recite epic poetry. Um, all these different things, Right. But there's movies in particular, right? What we consider to be sort of the feature film business. And oh, I got to capture that lightning in a bottle and sell that for 50 So what I'm getting at here is that movie making is what we have come to now as movies is a particularly good way of satisfying it's a particularly it's a particular way of satisfying uh that demand that i described before uh it's it's a it's a particular way it's a good way in that it's t- movies have settled on a, a typical length of a couple of hours or so which is long enough to tell a compelling story where there's you know uh you know up and downs of the narrative arc Yet short enough to sort of be, you know, uh, comprehended and it's to be to be taken in in one sitting and to be fully comprehended uh, in one sitting. Unless I'm trying to figure out what the heck Hugo was all about. That's right, right, right. So that's think that's something well, out there. In other words, so, so to, to summarize that, you know, we have a, uh, you know, the human need, fundamental human need for t- storytelling and myth, myth making. Um, you know, and and filmmakers have risen to that occasion and come up with this product, which is a couple of hours long, combination of moving pictures and sound and music and things like that, which does a really good job of telling those stories and, and giving us the myths that we want to uh, hear. So that produces then the touchstones we have of our culture, the myths, the Star Wars, the Indiana Jones, and things like mm-hmm. that. So, okay. The Star so- Wars, the Indiana Jones, the Saving Silverman, the yep. uh, Bridesmaids. The Tooth the Fairy. Car- the Carmen, a hip opera, all of them. Um, so, okay, so let's let one thing I wanted to pull out of that and unpack is this idea of like a fundamental human need. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily think that we need it to be a fundamental need, 
the fundamentalness. All right, of well, it, fundamental needs are like like I don't know well, food and and. Uh, no, 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 but I mean, but I mean, like, let's just say that. Well, the the main thing for because think about the gulf that there is between okay, what is my distribution system versus what is the fundamental human need that I'm serving? There's a there's a whole area between fundamental human need and like the point where you're even talking about yourself and what you do, where it's about what your customers want and what your customers are up to. And what your customers are up to doesn't have to be fundamental. And the, the people who, who listen to movies, watch the movies, they can have a need that isn't fundamental to them that you're serving. But it is interesting how so often in institutions and art institutions and businesses, you do think about like, well, what am I doing? Right? Like, what is it that I'm doing with myself? What is the point of my work? Right? Versus like, well, what is the, what is the person who's listening to it? What is the, what is the audience? Not necessarily even what does the audience want? Cause it's the whole like Steve Jobs thing, right? Which is like the audience's responsibility is not the, it's not the consumer's responsibility to know what the consumer wants. Right? You don't just go to the consumer, ask them what they want, provide them with what they want. And we don't even have to say consumer or just say people, right? Because we, we're, we're taking out the idea that you necessarily have to make money here. Throw that out the window a little bit and just say that I have a discursive relationship with these people. I want to do this thing called the movies to these people, right, or with these people. And these people want it for some reason. And why do they want it, right? Why do they want the movies? Um, they might they, they might want them. And then again, we can, I, can, I can list a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, I guess there is a fundamental need for storytelling. But that's, that's, that's kind of a tough, abstract thing to meet, um, I mean, I guess what if what if the need for movies is like a need for you know an evening an evening of entertainment, right? Like, what if what if the what if we figured out why do people continue to go to movie theaters? Well, they want their Fridays and Saturdays to be special, right? So our job is to make Fridays and Saturdays special. Okay, well then then you start thinking what are the different mechanisms I can use uh, to make these things special? Um, I mean, I guess one of the ways to make them special that people really like is to tell stories. I can do that. Ropes, magnets. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you start coming with absurd ideas like, well, give them food or give them a nice place to sit. But that's what the movies does. Whereas it gives them food. It gives them a nice place to sit. It gives them air conditioning, right? So, so if your idea is to sort of like make a special place where somebody can have a special experience, uh, and that's what you're doing. So that puts the movies in, in competition with things like spas, I guess. <laughs> like, tag, right? Um, as opposed to necessarily something like television. Uh, I mean, I guess when you're producing the content, if you're on that side, but again, that's what I'm doing. That's not what, what my customers are doing, what the people, people are doing. Um, I mean, again, the, 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 this does emerge from movies like Hugo, and, and there are a lot of movies which are about making movies, and, and a lot of them are from this idea of the tortured artist being forced to do this art that they feel like they can't do any other way, um, which, of course, I understand. I'm, I'm with you guys. <laughs> we, we're, doing this, we're not doing this just because we think it's going to make us a lot of money. Like, we want to do this. We need to do this stuff. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I just feel like in a lot of the conversations about streaming versus ads versus like a screen is a screen is a screen, which I read in the newspaper recently, right? This, this idea that um, your movie screen, your big screen TV, your iPad, your iPhone, your desktop, like your door that keeps the bugs out when you want to open the interior door to let <laughs> Like they are all screens, right? Like a pass that, that you throw to a running back who's along the right sideline. <laughs> Perhaps if you're running the option, I don't know why you're doing that in the NFL. You're probably crazy, and you probably won't meet with a lot of success. That's a topical joke that you guys don't get. But you're talking <laughs> about Tim Tebow, right? Oh, I'm correct. That's correct. May he, <laughs> may he kneel uh, in the offseason uh, frequently. 
he kneel in the offseason frequently? Yes. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about Tebow mania if you want, and we could talk about Tim Tebow. But um, football uh, is mean, the one with uh, funny hats and shoulder pads, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And the Jesus-loving quarterbacks. Yeah. Though, as uh, though as as Sheely pointed out uh, to me, the history of Western civilization is really the history of funny hats and shoulder pads. Yeah, <laughs> it's a metaphor. That's <laughs> very true. It's very true. It is funny to watch a whole bunch of people here in Boston who, like, I was with people who are generally um, emigres to Boston, like people who who aren't really didn't really grow up here, uh, who aren't really Patriots fans. And I was watching the game with them last night, and it was amazing how much everybody was rooting for Tom Brady. It was amazing. <laughs> like, uh, like everybody was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, we want. There was something. It's like. When you when you hate, and I'm, I'm going to connect this to what we're talking about because I feel like there is a, a common thread, which is that like it's like um, I mean I'm, I was grew up a Yankee fan, still a Yankee fan, and if you're going to be a Yankee fan, you have to be com- comfortable with this idea of, of there being an overwhelming force that at some point is going to like bring down a reckoning upon anything that might stand against it, right? Um, which is funny because one would think that would be the side that Tebow is on, but in fact it is not. Uh, he is on the side of the people who are kind of like plucky and consider themselves to be persecuted minorities, right? And it's like, I'm this special person, I'm this light in the darkness, right? Not like I am the force of the thunderbolt that's going to like destroy you, more like, you know, <laughs> I am sort of like little flower that's blooming, but I'm like made of steel or whatever. And just this idea that uh, the truth will out and there will be a reckoning because at some point Tom Brady is going to show up and he's going to start throwing touchdowns and you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do about that, right? It's almost like rooting for death. It's weird. (laughs) It's like, you know, the inevitable thing that's coming. Um, And it's not because you hate the guy. But it's because it's because of the arrogance, you know, that you comes across in like the mannerisms and and the association with political groups and the inappropriate commercials and all that other stuff. Like there's this this sense of the person overstepping their bounds, and and really because we all wish that we could overstep our bounds, but we know that we can't. It's very frustrating to see people who who do it in ways that we think are inappropriate. Um, I think, and, and so it's it's kind of reassuring when the sort of conservative force, in this case, like you know, an actual world class quarterback, like comes in and destroys you. Um, and in that sense, like, I think we might all also be rooting for the movies a little bit. Like, you know, we want the movies to be awesome. We want the movies to come up with the next big thing. I think people are excited about the prospect of something like Netflix, not because, oh, I can stream it to my house and I can get the bandwidth. It, I think it's because we like this institution of the movies, this, like, U.S. steel of entertainment. There's, like, New York Yankees of storytelling and sequential art, right, to, like, come in and have there be a reckoning against all these little upstarts. I think that there's something reassuring about that, and I think that, that the movies have more, have more on their side than they think they do. Um, especially the people who work professionally in the administration of the making of movies who themselves don't get to be celebrities and are probably pretty bitter about it, right? Like, um, you know, the person who runs the approval process for the, you know, um, hiring of the art directors or whatever, right? Like something like that. Uh, somebody who's like, they don't, maybe they did at one point have a dream about telling a story, but now they're involved in a business and they kind of feel like, the upstarts are getting all the glory and they don't get to have anything. And it's like, well, no, we kind of want you to come in and kick some ass, right? That, that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to get at is like, what is the ass kicking quality of the movies? Like when I sit down to watch Van Helsing, why do I have any expectations going to be exciting? Well, that's a deep cut. <laughs> that's the Hugh Jackman vampire hunting movie. And it's, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but at any rate, like, why am I excited to go see Van Helsing? Why do I want to go see Van Helsing? Because it's like a mashup. Well, I don't know why Van Helsing in particular. Because it was like a, it was like the girl talk all day of gothic horror. 
you know? Uh, I don't. I think it's because there was something movieish about it. It was like a movie. It was movieish. It, it was a heightened quality of moviness. Um, like there was some. It's not platonic, obviously, because it's it has elements. Like it's divisible, right? Unlike a platonic form, you can break it down. You can talk about its components, um, and it's also material. It's not immaterial. But there is something about there is a moviness there is like a cogent quality of moviness okay so what and, i mean is that you know i don't know what is that like quality of being cinematic is it the long shot or is it because i i agree with you and i think that like like uh the the movies tend to to shoot themselves in their own foot a lot of the time uh by by foregoing the quality of moviness right in a lot of the material that that they uh uh, that they put out. Like, I've seen so many movies that just don't seem cinematic, you know, that seem like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, oh, what am I, th- what am I thinking of? Like, uh, you know, when the, X-Fi- when the X-Files movie came out, there was a question as to whether it would be like two long episodes of the X-Files. Or, like, I, this is something that I'm, I'm yeah. or, uh, I, you know, uh, this is something that I'm looking forward to, the Arrested Development movie for because that mm-hmm. and and I could I could be proven wrong and be very disappointed but that show was so savvy about the medium that it was in and about exploiting the uh the characteristics of that medium to you know uh to great effect that I think that in a different medium they will sort of d- take the the limitations and and expectations of new medium and run with those to um uh hopefully to to great effect yeah. Now the 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 first time that I remember thinking about this sort of thing was while I was watching uh, Ducktales: The Treasure of the Lost Lamp when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and let me I, you can I can look up what year that was. Uh, lamp that'll probably be enough. Ducktales lamp. Yep, 1990. So I was 10, and I'm watching Ducktales: The Treasure of the Lost Lamp. And during this time period, there were a lot of movies that came out in theaters that were based on popular children's cartoons. This is not a controversial thing to do, but you could tell even if you were watching it on a TV whether you were watching Ducktales the show or Ducktales the movie. And the big way that you can tell is the um, the shading of the animation cells. Right, same right? thing it, happened it, in the Simpsons movie. Exactly, and then there's this thing that they do to cartoons when they make them into movies. And, and I've I've read that a, a lot of it has to do with the actual process and the sort of the money that you spend on the animating and how much time you spend on each cell and and also like just the technology of how you make animated movies. And I'm not as familiar with all that, but I do remember reading that it's not a coincidence, right? It's not just like, oh, we think this is a movie, so it should have a little more depth. There, there's reasons that you're, you have the money and time and the machinery to do that that you don't have in a television show. But from the perspective of the audience, like I intuitively understood that to be moviness, right? Like this is DuckTales the movie because it, it looks that little bit extra. It looks that there's that extra texture to it. There's that extra scope to it. Um, and it wasn't like I was watching it on a wide screen. I was watching it on I think I was watching it on VHS when I was actually thinking about this. It was actually the second time I saw it. I saw it once when it came out in theaters and I saw it again at a 4th of July party the following year. So this might have been 1991. Uh, when it's 11. And, uh, I mean, it's not great. It's fine. <laughs> it's like not all that spectacular, but it is a movie and it feels like a movie. Um, and, and I, and I think that 
in the people get caught up in the aspect ratio discussion is one place where they get caught up and because it's like well i want to make my movie and hopefully this conversation is going away and people are relieved that this conversation is going away because people have much wider televisions now um but this idea that you had a television aspect ratio you had a television watching experience you had a cinematic watching experience that a cinematic aspect ratio and you had to make movies that could be cropped right from the large screen to the small screen. Well, so and that, I, I mean, think- right. And this, this was a thing like with the advent of television, uh, the movies were kind of like, well, this is a much cheaper form of entertainment that's in everybody's homes. How do we distinguish, how do we distinguish ourselves? So, so like throughout time, movies have kind of pushed the frontier of what it means to be a movie. Um, in response to to other media, right? In response to yeah. the rise of other media, so it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the the quality of 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 moviness ought to be like that which is bigger and better than other forms of visual storytelling, right? Yeah, or deeper, or or I mean, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the perfect comparative adjective is, but there's definitely a sense of scope, and there's definitely a sense of of um, weight. Um, the, the, another mov- a movie that sure, right. another like movie that's episode, illustrative. An episode of a television show. Not every episode is going to be a huge cliffhanger, right? Like, not every episode yeah. is going to have uh, end of the world stakes. I, I've been thinking about this recently because I've been rewatching Star Trek: The Next Generation from the beginning uh, on Netflix, mm-hmm. and now that I'm I'm in season three finally, and. Uh, it, and and finally, the show kind of has shaped up into the Star Trek that I remember really enjoying as a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it took him two years to do it. And not just because the uh, the spandex one-piece uniforms have been replaced with the, like, the wool two-piece uniforms that have the, you know, slightly higher collar and... Uh, not slightly higher collars, period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that have the kind of collar. Yeah, the sort of military-looking... Uh, uh, color um but also because the you know i don't know the the writing the the sets the the look of the show kind of co- uh gelled um right uh, you know a- around that time and the the kind of story the kind of story that was told but so there's only one like best of both worlds per season you know what i mean yeah. and you can't it it would get it would get overly melodramatic i mean even more melodramatic and i've been I've been um, just shocked at how overheated Star Trek seems to me because it, I, I didn't notice it as a kid, um, mm-hmm. how overheated it was. But, uh, uh, but you know, you need your everyday, you need your everyday episodes. You need your elementary yeah. dear datas. You need your clip shows like Shades of Grey, which is a waste of a perfectly good hour that I'll never get back. Um, <laughs> you know what which I mean? one is that? It's the clip show at the end of season two where Riker gets stung by a like a like poison ivy. He gets where they have like the montage of all the chicks that he kisses, and yeah, they're trying to make him. End, like, yeah, there's viral. that montage, and then there's the montage of him like drop kicking things. And then, there's, <laughs> <laughs> and there's the montage of him in mortal peril, and it turns yeah. out that mortal peril was the key to spoiler alert was the key to curing his uh, alien fever. So they they like uh, you know shine lasers at his head and juice him up with more mortal peril yeah (laughs) (laughs) anyway so uh right so this is right this is television but um but uh 
you know, the in the Star Trek the next in Star Trek Nemesis, right? The the it's like Picard has a clone and the universe is going to end. You know, yeah. I mean, you can only end the universe on a television show maximum three times three times per season. So I think that the I think that the thing that you're, <laughs> you're I think that the thing that you're talking about, Pete, is like higher stakes, uh, right? Or a, a sense of um, a sense of a, a sense of kind of moment in the storytelling. Yeah. That is not necessarily uh, that is not necessarily um, in other media, and also movies tend to be more expensive because, uh, well, because I guess they have the expectation of making more money, and so they look they they tend to look better. Though I mean that I even uh, that division is I don't know kind of kind of blurring like what the the Simpsons TV show now has the tone shadow and the drop shadow from the Simpsons movie. Um, mm. you know, it's sort of re, it's sort of reimported that and, it, you know, it's all done on the same computers now anyway. And so there, you know, uh, there it is. Maybe. maybe yeah. 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 But maybe me, the difference is that's an, oh, go ahead, Mark. Okay. So what I'm hearing here, and, and this is going back, I, I fear I'm just going to sort of rephrase the initial question here, but I feel like this is a good way to put it yeah. is that, um, if you imagine, um, a, a series of sliders where you sort of uh, control the thresholds of different qualities of entertainment. I, and, I love the first, second and third series of sliders. <laughs> not that kind of slider. So you imagine one slider here is like the length of a particular uh, uh, presentation of a story, right? And then another slider is sort of the rep, and that's sort of like you know twenty minutes of a sitcom, to two and a half hours of an epic. Are, we, are you using the hamburger metaphor or the Jerry O'Connell metaphor? The, I, I don't know what either of those are, are you're talking about. Um, okay, so another slider is the um, it is like the repetition of it. It's like a one time for a movie, and then like you know uh, like twenty times per season for six seasons. And then you know another slider is like the amount of money that you put into it, and then like sort of the oh, the you mean like a gauge, like a slider, yeah, like a gauge, like a, right? And so like you know for for, for years for years and people have you know at the beginning of sort of the, the visual entertainment storytelling wise uh that that uh you know the people adjusted the sliders and they came up with the different forms of television series and movies that have existed you know up until this time until this sort of technology comes in the the digital era of the you know the sort of disruptive uh distribution and production uh technologies um have like th- We've thrown all those calculations, all those sliders out of whack. So now we're left in this moment here where we're this is why we're ax- asking these sort of existential questions about like you know what ought movies be, what ought television yeah. be, and how should they come to us? I think that the main one of the things that was said that that I think impressed me the most is this idea that a televisionness is associated with something that you can watch regularly and it doesn't exhaust you, doesn't take a lot out of you. Um, it's it's part of your day to day routine and moviness is a quality of specialness uh, and, and weightiness and scope that uh, the audience wants like like periodically but not all the time. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a quality. It's a uh, quality of pilgrimage, isn't it? Right. That, yeah. Like, yeah. You yeah. Go, you go to the movies. You don't just watch a movie. Yeah. You go to the movies and like and- like. Yeah. Like over time, movies are domesticated uh, by by kind of being accepted into the home, and now we all we probably all have a stable of movies that we can like just go to or put on in the background, or you know that come on on USA because they're always rerunning movies, and you can just watch uh, the Hunt for Red October over and over now. But but like I remember, you know, watching the Hunt for Red October for the first time, and it was like. 
you know, when he pulled that crazy Ivan to starboard, because he always goes to starboard in the bottom half of the hour, and Alec Baldwin just like staked it all on that, you know, on that guess. I, you know, I was living and dying with Alec Baldwin there, and that, you know, and that's the that's the cinematic quality, right? That's the that's yeah. the quality that's the quality of of moviness. So, which suggests to me that 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 quality of moviness can be lost. You know what I mean? Through yeah. through familiarity breeding contempt. Not exactly contempt, but you know what I mean. If familiarity weren't a foil to moviness, then they would have made enough movies for everybody to watch a long time ago, and they would not continue to have to make new ones. Right. right? Like, like, and that's one of the things that I think about sometimes, because I'm one of the, the pop culture I'm terrible at keeping up with is music. And uh, I sometimes wonder, like, well... You know, like in any given t- in any given year, there's more music made than you could listen to in your entire lifetime. So, is there really need to make this more music? All it does is create more stuff I can't keep up with. But then that starts thinking, like, well, you know, you can't watch an unlimited number of movies. You only have so much time to watch movies. You only have so much time to listen to music. So, why is it that we have to continue making more of them when we already have more than enough for any one person to watch them nonstop for their entire life? This is, I mean, right? this is an interesting question because doesn't it doesn't it say something about uh, about uh, any given person, which um, uh, right, which thing they're they're committed to. Like Sheely is is always up to date on the latest music. I I'm right. always up to date on the latest television, and not on you know not mm-hmm. on movies. I haven't seen a bunch right. of uh, I haven't seen a bunch of movies. But then but then you know we have friends on on overthinking it where it's like the 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 latest movies is what they know um, yeah. all about. Uh, yep. And it's sort of it has to do doesn't it have to do with with some you have some kind of sense of uh, some sense of yourself and you know what I'll tell you why I'm not I'll, I'll tell you why uh, I'm not um, uh, as into movies as I'm into other things it's because I'm a hollowed out broken down shell of a man uh, oh no, Matt it's, no it's not <laughs> um, it's it's because I go to movies and that sense of moment always kind of seems overheated to me now it seems like it's unearned uh right a lot of you know a lot of the time it's it's kind of like um and, and I'm not speaking from experience because I've never done this but it's kind of like sleeping with a prostitute right like right uh you know all the nice things that uh that the prostitute says to you are you know are not true you know what I mean? You know it's not the greatest night of anybody's life. In fact, well, never mind. It's probably <laughs> probably <laughs> probably gone far enough down down. Well, see, see, Matt. The thing is, this is the point in your life where you have to make a growth. You have to make a movement for your own personal growth, which is you have to go see good movies, well, not but, just bad. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, that isn't that isn't that always the answer that is always I, inadequate. I, mean, I find that I find that my life. You know, at the the ripe old age of thirty one, right? Like I find that my life. Um, kind of is more about kind of going from day to day you know you know what i mean like yeah. sort of sort of existing existing through time and this this idea that i think is kind of an adolescent idea or a, kind of belongs to the extended adolescence that we all seem to have uh all through our 20s now um and and by we all i mean you know people with the economic means uh 
right this this idea of like this is it you know what i mean anna begins to to stay awake uh little counting crows reference for those of you who like me think that all the good music was made in the 90s um <laughs> the, you know what i, mean? I never this, believed it till i heard it from you I don't, <laughs> this fool. sense of um this sense of like oh this is it this is the most important moment it has never happened like this to anyone else before and uh you know and it's the- this is the day. This is the da 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 da. Anyway, sorry. That's Harvey. 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 <laughs> Didn't know you. <laughs> Didn't it's, know it's you Jekyll. were on the panel tonight. Yeah. Hey, uh, Harvey. What, let's what, be honest. Harvey is always on the panel. <laughs> hey, uh, Harvey. What what uh what kind of public infrastructure would you like to live in the walls of if you could pick any public infrastructure project and you uh you could you know spend the rest of your days cooped up uh, hidden from view. I uh, I, li- I hear that the neon lights are bright on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Under the bridge downtown. It's where I do some love. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I'm not gonna pay. I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> this, hey, you. I mean, talk about like a medium having an identity crisis. You think it's bad in the movies? Uh, you know, try working in the theater for five minutes, and and yeah. uh, it's um, it's even worse. And somehow it's kind of meaner and more vicious because nobody makes any money in that business. Yeah. You know, the lower I mean? the stakes are, the angrier people get about yeah. things. That's generally <laughs> that's works. the joke about academic politics, right? Academic politics are so vicious because the stakes are so low. Well, you originally told it to me as a joke about how to run a college marching band. But <laughs> was, yes, in college, when like with the just the terrible infighting and backstabbing that happened, uh, especially in the race for drum major of our college marching band, which McNeil won and I didn't, and I will never forgive him for. <laughs> Despite the fact that you've been working together on this website for four years now, despite the fact and that never, we've been never, friends for we've been you know <laughs> great friends for more than a decade, I yeah, will yeah, yeah. never forgive him. Uh, yes, I used to say marching band politics are, are so vicious because the stakes are so low. But I was stealing and paraphrasing a, uh, an old saw about academic politics. Um, right, right. But so right, like this is. Um, this is a pro. I, I think there's a, a problem as we kind of get to the to the wrapping up when your um, when your mission statement has to do with like our our job is to outdo all the other media. You know what I mean? Like televisions yeah. here, we're going wider. Okay, we're going super, but we're going. It's not just two three five. It's two eight five, baby. It's cinema scope. Yeah. You know um, the. Actually, you don't get a prize for having the best train when nobody is taking the train. Right, like, anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. And or you know, to put it another way, it's the, it's what Warren Buffett said. You know, I'd rather be I'd rather be mediocre in a great business than great in a mediocre business. You know what I mean? Right. If, if no one wants, uh, if no one, you know, if no one wants the category of thing you're selling, it doesn't matter that your product, is, is, you know, is the best in the category. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you don't need to tell me that. We make podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is also raises the question, which I guess we can sort of leave off, uh, not necessarily address, which is what is overthinking it trying to accomplish, right? Like, what are, and not, and even past that, what are, what is the, why are you doing it of things like WordPress blogs? And well, things I like, uh, you, I mean, I, I can tell you exactly what, because we've had some, some at the, uh, 
sort of editorial level, I guess we've had some some talks about this recently as we talk about sort of the future of overthinking it and the fourth uh, fourth anniversary coming up uh, uh, on Sunday, January 22nd, uh, 2012, right? Um, and, you know, this is kind of a, this is a, a, a uh, just the beginning uh, of a mission statement. Um, and, you know, don't hold me to it because it's, it's still in process and, you know, we may do it. But overthinking it is here to make you smarter about the things you love. You know, you have things, you love them, you already love them, you, you love your favorite movies, you love your favorite TV shows, and you love your favorite movies, and we're trying to, to, uh, to make your experience of those things richer by, by making you smarter about them. Yeah, and not necessarily just by instructing you, more like by encouraging you to have these conversations yourselves too, because you can learn by, by talking. By, and by, like... inviting you, by inviting you into a conversation, and that's, what, that's yeah. why a lot of the... You know, I mean, that's why the 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 comments, you know, are so important. And our, I don't know how we do it, but our comments, I think, are the best on the internet, or like on the. Uh, and I'm not pandering when I say that. You know what I mean? I'm I'm shocked at how at how civil and how productive uh, so many of our comment threads um, are, given that it's the internet. You know, and and. Uh, and I think you'll see more, <laughs> there will be more, not less, uh, of that kind of community aspect and sort of the sense of inviting you into a conversation and, invi- you know, inviting you to kind of initiate conversations uh, on your own uh, through, you know, overthinkingit.com coming, uh, coming up. But, uh, you know, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to tease things. We're just like, these, these plans are not... There's nothing wrong with teasing things. It's marketing. You're yeah. trying to get people excited. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, uh, you know, um, but hey, in, in, a week there, the, in a week there will be some big news. Big, big news yep. uh, about yep. this. So, um, and it won't be about Tebow because he's out of the playoffs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, Actually, no, he's joining Overthinking It. He's quit football, and he's going to be our new podcaster. It's going to be Tim Tebow. Right. It's going to be pretty great. He's going to be really terrible for the first 45 or 50 minutes of the podcast, and he's going to make this awesome salient point at the end. It's kind of loop its way into your cranial. It's going to be awesome. So while, we, while we were talking, Martin Scorsese won the Golden Globe for, for uh, Best Director of a Motion Picture. Uh, yeah, for Hugo? Uh, for Hugo, yep. And uh, wow. Jean, Jean Dujardin. The uh, lead guy and the artist uh, won uh, actor, the actor award for comedy or musical uh, motion picture. And, uh, oh, and Meryl Streep won for uh, Iron Lady for the, uh, in the drama this, category. This is on the television, you know, on the small screen side of things. <laughs> um, but I just would want to point out that in the category for best uh, performance in a, in a television series, musical comedy for a male actor, uh, Matt LeBlanc, yes, as in Joey from Friends, beat out the likes of Alec Baldwin, David Duchovny, uh, Johnny Galecki, and Thomas Jane. That's what is Matt LeBlanc? Congratulations to him. He's in a Showtime show called Episodes, which is uh, uh, about British writers being hired to make an American version of their television show. And they, <laughs> and they get – and Matt LeBlanc plays himself. Uh, plays Matt LeBlanc, and they get Matt LeBlanc foisted on them as the star of their television show. And, you know, and, and it was supposed to be Richard Griffiths as the, you know what I mean, as the, like, the headmaster of the prep school, but then the show is rejiggered so that it's about a hockey coach, and it's renamed... <laughs> <laughs> hockey coach plays by Matt LeBlanc, and it's renamed Pucks. Actually, Episodes is a really good... 
uh, is a really good comedy series that I, you know, that I, I recommend to anyone. You see, I, I watch all the damn TV. Showtime's- I'm glad it is. And I'm glad Matt LeBlanc is doing good work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Showtime's been killing it. Uh, Claire Danes won for Homeland, which, which was another, um, which was another great year of I mean, great season of television and a great performance from her. Though- is, that, is, that show not, is that show guaranteed not to get canceled now? Does that mean that she has some homeland security? Oh! Oh! oh. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I interrupted you with silliness. Continue. <laughs> oh, please, God knows I do it. Decorative arts. They're called decorative arts. Uh, the, <laughs> I do it all the time. So, you know, I, the, thing that we, the thing that we didn't get to and that we should leave... Um, the thing that we didn't get to that we should leave for the, the comments is how do we change movies? I mean, let's fix movies. Let's, let's do a solid to the, uh, you know, to the movies, capital T, capital M. And, um, and yeah, uh, n- not, just, not just kind of find a new way of distributing the old crap that they make, but find a new way of, of meeting this demand for the, you know, the works of visual storytelling that are, uh, that are somehow bigger, that are more epic or more momentous uh, somehow than what you see on, on other screens, like, you know, in progressive order, uh, down, uh, television, computer, tablet, and smartphone screens, uh, right? Um, and let's... pass, and pass, and bug door, and... Uh... <laughs> the, you know... Um, wh- you fly these puns out of my cold, dead hands, Raptor. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do to... Um... Uh, what can we do to make the movies better? Sound off in the sound off in the comments. Uh, and hey, the the easy answer is instead of making one three hundred million dollar movie, uh, make ten thirty million dollar movies, which would be better on you know on any number of levels. But um, let's let's actually or just skip over that question. Three hundred you know I mean? million one dollar movies. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, continue. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. We'll take your pitches for up to $300 million $1 movies uh, <laughs> on the, the comments of the show notes. So if you want to join the conversation, you can email us at podcast at overthinking.com or you can uh, call or text 203-285-6401. One of these days we'll get around to playing the voicemails, I swear. Um, but uh, the, the best place and where I think I want to continue this conversation because I really am, I really am curious – um, as someone who's interested in entertainment uh, as to like, you know, where can you go? Cause I, I love the movies. Uh, you know, my, my hollowed out, broken down shell of a man status, uh, and my, you know, just my goal of clawing my way from day to miserable day and just getting through for God's sake, uh, notwithstanding, I, um, I, you know, do love the movies and I, I want to save them. And if anyone can do it, uh, why it's www.overthinkingit.com, the website where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It yeah, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I'm T-Bowing now, you just can't see it. <laughs> you too? I was doing it also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so crazy. That's so weird that we were T-Bowing at the same time. It must be the Lord's will. Is that how you guys end the podcast? Oh, yeah. yeah. Every time. I Tebow every time. <laughs> Tebowing is when you um, perform a, a sex act, right? It's like a <laughs> sex act. <laughs> oh.